0: Om. 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 Oh. Honestly Hi everyone, welcome to episode 61 of Honestly Unbalanced. This week's guest is the wonderful Anna Ashby. I met Anna at a class in TriYoga, London, Camden, and Anna is just an absolutely wonderful yoga teacher. She specializes in restorative yoga and argues that this is the kind of yoga that is really, really needed in this day and age, all about restoring, balancing, relaxing, which we dive right into in the conversation. Uh, So Anna is a senior yoga teacher and trainer in the UK. She's been studying and practicing yoga for over 30 years, teaching for over 20. And she actually has a dance background and lived in an ashram in New York for 12 years, which was super interesting to hear all about. Anna has a book coming out on the 21st of March, which is called Restorative Yoga, Power, Presence, Practice for Teachers and Trainees. We loved this conversation. We talked about the process of writing a book, managing perfectionism and facing self-doubt, what is meant by power, purpose, and presence, the difference between yin and restorative yoga, how to regulate your nervous system, the importance of creating a safe space as a teacher, the pros and cons of Zoom teaching and listening to your inner voice. We hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. And as always, if you love the podcast, please leave us a five star rating and review because it really helps us to get these conversations out far and wide. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode. Also, if you are interested in becoming a Crystal Bowl sound healer, I'm super excited to let you know that I have a couple of upcoming trainings. So the first one is at TriYoga in Camden. It's a three-day intensive that starts on the 23rd of April. And the second one is for those of you who can't get to London and want a bit of a longer journey, it's a 12-week online sound healer training experience, and that starts on April the 13th only a few spots left in that one. So if you're interested, you wanna have a little read about all of the information, just head to my website, which is hollyhustler.com and get in touch with me if you have any questions at all. If Sound Healing calls you, I'm right here to answer any of your questions. And lastly, just before you listen to the episode, just a little reminder that code hustler—that's capitals H U S L E R—gets you ten percent off all lifeform products. They are the best mats in the world. Go and You're treat yourself. Unbalanced.
1: So I read your—you're in the intro to the book last night by Richard Rosen, who's one of my favourite people in the world. He's just the nicest mm-hmm. man, uh, and there was humble man. But it, it, I think the phrase was the book. Your book took a year from conception. To release that seems insanely fast, or is that what did he lie? Did he?
2: <laughs> uh, you know, it's hard for me to say, really. It just seemed like a really long time when I was writing it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but
2: but remember, I've been you know, I've been teaching restorative for a long mm. time, mm-hmm. and it was really the distillation of years of teaching the training. It, it already, it's already kind of there, mm. and so then when. And actually, it was, it was in 2020 that I approached the publisher. But they had approached me a couple of years before that. But I was busy designing the advanced teacher training for Triogo with Gene Hall. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I don't have time. And so I just let it go. Mm-hmm. And then in the February of 2020, right before everything changed, um, I approached them. And I said, and I realized I had this really strong hit. It's time to write this book. And I just thought, I need to do this. Um, And I just called the publisher up and like, do you still want me to write this book on restorative yoga? And they were like, yeah. So, And that started the process. And then then the pandemic happened. Everything closed down. And my crazy schedule stopped. (laughs) (laughs) And all of a sudden, I had a bit more time, like uninterrupted time, to actually – sit with it and work with it. And so it allowed a process to happen that was barely focused. Um, and I think that's maybe why it seems like it, it happened pretty quickly, because time stopped in a certain way, which I thought was perfect for restorative yoga. Yeah.
0: How did you find the process of writing the book? Was it Did it flow quite naturally, or were there lots of struggles along the way? Uh, well,
2: I'm a perfectionist,
1: right? <laughs> oh, dear.
2: Uh, so... I did find it in one, on one way it flowed because the information was there, but then I'd read it, you know, and I'm like, that's not it yet. So you have to work with it. You have to work with it. You have to keep revising and editing and editing. And it's not the right word. I'm a word person. So, and my issue is I do too many words. so I had to keep cutting and cutting. And so it ha- it flowed, but I found it really hard. You know, a lot of the self-doubt stuff that comes up, like I can't do this. And I, I it, it reminded me when I first, um, well, in my relationship with Richard Rosen, we, you know, we've known each other about five or six years, not terribly long, but at one point he came to London and we were having dinner with John Sturk, who are, and they're both obviously a, accomplished authors, whom I deeply respect, and they turned to me at some point in the dinner and they're like, "When are you going to write your book?" And I'm just like, "Oh." <laughs> You know, I just felt so intimidated by that. Honestly, I was like, I can't write a book. I'm not good enough, you know. And, but it's funny, that stuck in there. So it was kind of like this thing happening Mm. over time. And then when the moment came, I just understood it was, you know, do it. So then when I was writing it, it was hard. It was like a trying to pull out, you know, what it wanted to be and tried to step out of the way of it a bit. Mm. Um, But I definitely had huge anxiety. (laughs) And, what, and during the pandemic, you know, that was even more anxiety-ridden, too.
1: Now, what kind of intention did you have going into it? Of course, you know, with the pandemic, space opened up, as you say, in your schedule and life to actually, for you to put, put, put thoughts to paper. But, like, people have different approaches to writing books. Some people are pushed into it, aren't they? They kind of pushed and they feel they need to write a book to feel accomplished. Some people... Write a book because everyone tells them they need to because they just share so much knowledge, which I'm sure is probably kind of the case for you. You've shared so much, you've got so much information. But what were your intentions for writing it?
2: Well, it was a very clear when I woke up that one morning in February 2020, literally, I woke up in the morning, it was like, call the publisher. Oh, really? It's time to write your book. It was, wow. t- and I don't normally have those kind of inner messages, you know, it was just <laughs> like, I was like, oh to the extent that I would get up, roll out of bed, go straight to my computer and like, you know, send the email. And I just felt this very, very strong inner, you know, urge, inner hit. And so I I followed it. But I I think it stemmed more there's there's information, knowledge, but there's also like I just felt it's my responsibility. Mm. Like I've been working with this material for so long. And I could see that it hadn't really been captured in a certain way um, that I felt was important to get onto paper. And it was about connecting between different, um, not only like in the practical sense of how you teach it, but to link it back to the tradition and also to to make sure that the, the scholarly aspect was sound. And I just felt like it was important for me to get this, up so that others could then take it and build on it it was something that was missing i felt and if i wasn't going to do it you know that would be you know how it feels like a missed opportunity like just go for it to do it
1: i like what you said there about responsibility because in this world everyone can almost have an equally loud voice can't they you know through social media or alike, and there are so many experienced teachers who aren't getting their voice out there They're kind of waiting for people to come to them, which of course that can't happen. And so the voices that are amplified are the other teachers, perhaps that don't have so much experience or alike. And I like, yeah, I like the fact that that there is a responsibility that you had because you've been teaching what an obscene amount of years. You are probably one of the most senior yoga teachers in the UK. Has trained hundreds of people. And so if yeah, if you didn't get this out there, who would? Who would be writing the book on restorative yoga? It'd be uh.
2: Exactly. (laughs) That that was the feeling. It was like. You need to get this informed so that it can be there for people to build on,
1: Mm.
2: you know.
0: I'd love to know, um, You use the words power, presence and practice. And where did the inspiration for those words come from? Well, the practice itself, you know, the experience of restorative. And I had to fight
2: for that title. I love it. It's beautiful. (laughs) I just wanted to do restorative yoga and and I mostly kind of went along with it. But there's a part of me that just, My little Korean horns came out. I was like, "Nope, (laughs) it has to be this title. So I actually framed the book that way. So I wanted to talk about the power of the the practice itself from um, the physiological point of view, you know, from the nervous system point of view, which is so profound. But then I also felt for me, while that's an important aspect and probably one of the, you know, it's the primary intention of restorative yoga is to adjust the nervous system to downregulate. And, But for me, actually, the practice is not so much about that. That's like a, a necessary prerequisite for being able to get very present and investigate the very essence of who and what we are. Mm. So it's a deep inquiry. And you can't really do that well when your nervous system is on, you know, 150 miles an hour. So that that was what it was. So the power of it from a physiological point of view, why we do it, and then the purpose of the practice. And then going into the presence and how, what does that mean? So I, I kind of talk about this kind of present a concept called embodied presence. What does that mean to go in and be present to what is there? And then it and then it builds upon the breath from, from the experience of different texts of the tradition. Um, so it has, it's the more artful part of it, I think. And then of course the practice is the syllabus and here's how you put the poses together and here's the sequences and this is what you do in a class. So that's how it came
1: about we should probably talk about what restorative yoga actually yeah, is because i, I think in, in most studios <laughs> not like try like newer studios it's kind of very much interchangeable with yin mm. yin mm-hmm. restorative calm yoga <laughs> yin and yang yoga uh it's all kind of mi- mixed up a little bit but especially yeah, yeah. between yin and restorative and like for me they're fundamental things my view is actually i love yin but yin is actually an extreme style of yoga to a degree in the same way that Ashtanga is quite an extreme style of yoga. So, can you talk about the difference between them?
2: Yeah, it's definitely an area where people conflate the two, and they're just very different practices. They come from very different branches of the yoga tree. Um, restorative, very specifically, the modern practice comes directly from BKS Iyengar, that particular style of yoga. Whereas Yin comes obviously from Paul Grilly and, and has a and it's a it brings in other aspects and it's its own thing they're just different and that's how I kind of framed it in the book it's not like it's they're both quite introspective you know mm-hmm. um, they're both on the floor there's where there's places where they do cross over but there's an intensity to Yin it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily position the nervous system at, you know you know downshift at the at the core of the practice it has different things that it focuses on, and I'm not an expert to talk about yin. But they're just different. Mm -hmm. And so restorative is all about, and I was thinking about the purpose of the practice. I found that a really nice thing to go into. Um, And I found writing the book really crystallized what I have always felt about restorative and and pulled out these different aspects. But there's an interesting aspect with restorative. It's about if you're going to downshift the nervous system, if you're going to shift towards equilibrium and even into a deep relaxation response which is what it's about then what are the conditions that help to create that mm-hmm. and and how do we ourselves in our own experience how do we even understand our own nervous system mm-hmm. you know from how we use the technology you know and are constantly being engaged and stimulated all the time from and the way that we Might drink coffee, and I love coffee, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But it's like the things that we do, how does it affect our physiology in such a way that it impacts our state? Mm. And so, you know, there's this concept. um, Chris Swain, he um, teaches on the Trioga teacher trainings, the anatomy, and he's my teaching partner for the restorative teacher trainings. And he does these wonderful presentations about stress physiology. And you know, the whole nervous system is designed to move towards a state of balance. Mm -hmm. And a healthy nervous system is one that shifts easily from being, having to engage and deal with the, you know, like if you're trying to jump out of the way of the bus, you need to, all forces need to get you out of the way of it, right? But then a healthy nervous system says, oh, once you're out of danger, you come back. And, but if you're in a chronic stress response all the time, that kind of resilience of the nervous system gets lost. So, to be able to to cultivate and experience relaxation is really important for maintaining the um, the resilience of the nervous system. And there's really sp- specific things that help like just even the whole concept of feeling safe, mm.
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, like you cannot relax if you do not feel safe. So that's an interesting aspect. Like how do you create an environment? And I was thinking, Holly probably has a similar thing when yeah. you work with the, Um, the gongs and the bowls, bowls. that kind of thing. It's like you create sanctuaries. That is a real important aspect of the work. Um, Everything from how you feel in the space, even the design of it, uh, the the smell of the space, how close people are or not, um, the way the teacher engages with you and how their facial expression even, uh, if they smile or not. There's so many factors that can affect the way that we feel and engage with one another. So... Restorative yoga actually takes into consideration all these different aspects in order to provide an environment that allows this experience of feeling safe and to be able to become soft and to breathe and to go in, you know, Mm. so I, anyway...
0: I love that. I think that's something that's just not really taught enough in trainings. And I think I always say at the beginning of a session, it first and foremost, you're only going to be able to surrender and let go if you feel held and safe. So it's the, the duty of the teacher to make sure that's the number one, I think, before before you start mm-hmm. teaching. So really interesting you touched on that.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and also I was going to say, to, I think that culturally our relationship to relaxation and space is very twisted. Well, I know it is for me coming from an American background and mm. where work is the focus and, you know, and I'm a very energetic person and, you know, it's really hard for me to stop and pause, which I find it, the utter irony of the universe saying, I need to write a book on restorative yoga. I mm. <laughs> like the most like, you know, an highly reactive nervous system, but I, I cannot, for me, I actually need that type of work to go slow and be very present and feel in order to find this space of equilibrium and engagement and connection. So I think to create not only sanctuary, feeling safe, but actually to language as a teacher, to give permission that to slow down and become quiet, to become still is actually incredibly powerful and valuable Mm. and it's something that we we haven't seemed to value very well Mm. i think in western context so that's another thread of the book is to, to to place that central that this is actually okay and i used to laugh i used to teach on the trainings with joey miles who's a you know a brilliant ashtanga practitioner and not on the restorative training on our level one training and it was hilarious because he you know he's doing these amazing quiet, acrobatic practice, very focused and diligent and disciplined. And and he's like, we'd always have these moments where we would teach the restorative, you know, and he would just, just, he loved it. He he loved the contrast. And I noticed that the Ashtangis are like, they love the restorative. They just want to relax because the the nature of their practice is so physically challenging and intensive. Like that counterpoint to their practice was really Important. Of course, then I tried to do the Ashtanga and completely like this miserable
1: advantage. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't do it. There was there was an analogy in that first chapter of the book that maybe has some relevance here. You talk about sowing the seeds for connection through downshifting. And what came to my mind when I read that is do we like, do we need to do some de-weeding first? Before we sow the seeds, do we need to de-weed? And then perhaps then is the Ashtanga practice a more vigorous practice, that chance for you to mush things up a little bit, get some waste and then You've, you know, you've cultivated some nice soil from which then you can pause. Do Does does a dynamic practice complement the restorative, I guess, is a short question.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely am the first one to say that it can't just be all restorative. <laughs> uh, and in fact, recently I, I had to, don't tell anybody, but I, I bought some, uh, you know, what do you call it? Was called? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Dumbbells. <Yeah. laughs> Wait.
2: Dumbbells, that's what it is. And a sit-up board, because my my partner was like, you're weak. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's military. You know, and I'm like, God, I'm like, you know, (laughs) but I realized, actually, I just have become very fond of just lying over my bolster and going in and staying there. And that actually, and I started to feel some pain in my body, and I realized I need to have equal amounts of strengthening a little bit more attention to that. Thought. I think I got a little bit too far down and mm. not having a, a balance to the practice. Um, but that said, there's another aspect. I do think when I was thinking what you said, D weed, it's like, if we come from a culture where everything is super fast all the time and you're on the go, 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 we know this when you like go into vacation and or holiday, I guess you say here, it's like, the first two or three days are very disorienting.
1: Mm.
2: You just kind of don't know what to do yourself. And you're like, i got to do something, got to do something. And then I don't know, day three, four, you, you get into just being. And I think it's a kind of a similar dynamic. You have to, um, sometimes I think it's good, you know, it's good to get out the jittery aspect. You know, I was thinking for years, I was being a dancer, movement and expression was my thing. So, I found it very hard to meditate. I, you know, I, I lived in a meditation ashram, mm. and I felt I couldn't meditate. <laughs> when I told that to my teacher, she laughed her head off.
1: <laughs> At what point oh, did you? Or, or what, is that, how did you end up there? What made you want to uh. go to? A...
2: <laughs> wow, this could take the rest of the conversation. You uh. know, I mean, well, you know, I come from, you know, these modest. Roots in the Texas Panhandle. And I'm not going to say the name because everybody will start singing the song.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to figure that
2: one out. Say
0: the name. (laughs) (laughs) Amarillo. Ah! Oh. Show me the way I ha- I to I had to
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Of course you will. We will
1: We'll add that to the intro of the podcast <laughs>
0: Let's
2: all sing it together <laughs> It was hilarious When I came over here to this country I was like, at the time that was when it, that hit came out and I was like <laughs> I'm like, people in Texas don't even know This is a song and Furthermore, I have a, a stepsister named Maria
1: <laughs> Oh no and then every so often, so, it's re-released, isn't it? And then Peter Kay yeah. did a version of it.
2: Uh... Oh, oh, so, you know, so these humble roots in the middle of kind of the high plains of Texas where you could see, you know, there's no hills. It's, it's as opposite to England as you can get. It's flat cattle country. But the, the skies are beautiful. And, you know, I remember that those skies. I would look out my window when I was a little kid and I would just be like, you know, just moved. To tears because of the beauty of the the sunrise, no. the sunset. It was more like the sunset. I wasn't a morning person. Mm-hmm. And then, and I end up in California, in the Bay Area, you know. And it's a from Amarillo, Texas, to the Bay Area is a very overwhelming transition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the Bay Area is kind of so diverse. So there, when I was at school, uh, went to university there to get a, a degree in dance performance and choreography and and it was you know it, uh, maybe as you, when you went to university it's a big transition isn't it it's such mm-hmm. a, a fragile age you don't know who you are where you're going or anything so I ended up seeing this uh, school counselor who gave me this book Autobiography of Yogi and said here oh, read this th- actually yeah we and, talked
0: about that recently didn't we yeah sorry carry on you know, yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean it's an amazing book mm. and um I just I can't even remember what I read but I just remember thinking Wow it just kind of started to open up the world and at that point then I I met somebody in the dance department who practiced yoga and so she kind of took me under her wing and there was a, a tiny little ashram in Oakland California that she started taking me to and that was wonderful you know I just it was very strange though you know there's pictures of these Indian men and in little you know tiny little um, you know <laughs> Pants. I don't know it looks like underpants <laughs> right on. and um, but I, I remember walking into the, this small ashram in the middle of the worst part of Oakland. I mean, Oakland's can have some rough sides to it. And I would step in and it was the smell, the fragrance. And I kind of felt all like the little hair follicles stand on in. I, I felt this immediate recognition, like somehow i had come home. Wow. It was very strange. And so then I would go and I started seeing, um, you know, going to programs where, uh, guru Mai, who who is the leader of this particular ashram would give talks and things and i just I, the minute i saw her i just knew at some level that she was my teacher i just i don't know even quite how to explain it um because it was a very alien environment i don't necessarily recommend it for everybody you know like going into an ashram is a big thing to do but i remember so i was going to university and then going to the ashram in the evenings and kind of unfolding the, the dance, the experience I had when I was dancing, and the feeling I'd have when I would go and chant. Chanting is like a major practice. It just like, you know, it's holly knows blows, open mm. heart. And I would just have profound experiences. And so then when it was time to graduate, you know, I was like, I'm going to go to the main ashram. And my parents were, you know, a bit horrified. <laughs> They, lost. they did lose me for about 12 years i have to say oh. um but they were gracious about it so then that because it was so compelling that experience and i felt like a call and i knew it wasn't necessarily dance but i wanted to study more about what the yoga was and i you know just seeing gurumayi's state of being it's just such an extraordinary being around a very high being someone who's you know attained a high state it's very powerful experience and i just wanted to go immerse myself and kind of Pull back from the world a bit, um, and that was that was good. But I didn't think I wasn't going to leave. I didn't t- intend to ever leave. I was going there for life. Wow! And then what happens? You meet a man. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so were you were you living were you living there or were you living in accommodation nearby?
2: I was living in the ashram. Oh, so you living in. I, yeah, I joined the, the staff, There's a, a small staff to be able to run the programs and stuff of the ashram. So um, in that way, that enabled me to stay there for a long time. You know, I, you know, I wasn't making any money or anything like that. I was just simply wanting to be there and, and, and be with Guru Mai and practice. And, and the main practice there was actually, in that context of an ashram, Guru Seva, which is Seva or service. So you get assigned to anything. I did oh, all right. kinds of crazy things. Could have been from. I never did get assigned to cleaning the toilets, <laughs> <laughs> but it could have happened. Um, in twelve years, up, in
1: twelve years, that never became yeah, your how job. How do you dodge
0: that? Well done. No,
2: I did all kinds of things. From it seemed to be like, like in, in, like the presentation of programs and stuff like that. So, and I was always on the side of logistics, so, yeah. and I ended up at some point running the tours. And so I had the kind of two halves of the brain. I had the creative side, but I had this also logistical side. So I, you know, that was, I was good at that. Um, But I got tired and a part of me longed. I had been dancing before this. And then when I came to the ashram, I stopped. Mm. So, but then I felt myself kind of, so I started going to Hatha yoga classes at the ashram. And at that particular time, um, they were bringing in key Iyengar teachers From New York City, which wasn't very far. And uh, it was just a short window where they did that. And so I met some really amazing teachers. Or on my off time, I'd go down to New York City and I would practice mainly with Kevin Gardner, um, this um, very senior Iyengar teacher who now lives in, um, where is he now? He's over in uh, Hungary. Yeah. He married the Iyengar teacher in Hungary. So they live there now. But that, I don't know, that was always kind of on the side, verbally. Along. I was doing all this other stuff and studying the teachings and, um, you know, it was a quite a, a really powerful time to be honest. And then I met my, that my ex-husband there <laughs> who's English, um, quite a, a lovely soul. And, and then at one point, you know, we eventually got married I'm making this very short <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then he was, he got, un, he was unwell. So he had to actually, he couldn't stay. He had to come back to the UK. And all of a sudden, I found myself plonked in the middle of Nuneaton in his parents' house after 12 years in ashram. That's a, wow. not spring, I, I, was just a little, I think I was in shock. Yeah, um, and he was, and it took him a while, actually a long time to get well, but he did in the end, thank goodness. Um, but during that time, that's the link, you see. Jonathan Satin, who runs TriYoga, we both, he practiced in the same ashram. And so, in my last, when I was on tour in California with Gurmai, that last time she went on tour, actually, and I was, got pulled into teaching Hatha Yoga, funny enough, I wasn't, it wasn't my normal seva, but that the last she pulled me into the programs I was teaching. And then, then I became clear that it was time for me to go, which was, I couldn't believe I got to that point, because I'd never wanted to leave. And so, but I realized you can't marry somebody and leave them when they're when they're not well. Mm. Yeah, you know. Mm. So that was an interesting time for me. So I had to make a choice. And then I also thought to myself, well, it's all well and good to have all these teachings and be inspired and be around amazing beings and yeah. like-minded people, but what's it like to actually live and 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 practice in the world? Like, how do you live these things in an everyday context and survive? So there was a real a part of me that really wanted to make sure that it was, the teachings were true in that way. Mm. And, and ha- so then I poof, jumped, and that was crazy. But that last time I was in the Oakland Ashram, funny enough, because I was in New York most of the time, I ended up back where I started 12 years later, and Jonathan sat and walks through the corridor of this ashram I first started, walks up to me in his way that you probably know. <laughs> um, <laughs> funny face pulled. Funny, yeah, funny face. And he's like, I hear you're coming to the UK. I, I, I sort of—I don't—he doesn't sound like that, but that's my interpretation. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And I was kind of looking at him like, because I didn't really know him all that well. I just had seen him around in different programs and stuff. He was always in the hall with Gurmai, and I was always outside of the hall mm. running things, right? So he goes, "Well, here's my card. I would love for you to come teach at Triyoga." At then it was in Primrose Hill, right? And um, and I was like, okay, thank you. And I just put it aside and I forgot about it because I had too much going on and had to move from one country to the next and all that kind of stuff. And so eventually I end up in the UK, in Naneetan, and I get a job. You're going to laugh at this, right? I worked in a t-shirt factory when I first came to this country. Oh, wow like, producing, you know how t-shirts for graduation has all the names of the students? Like, the only skill I could think of, it didn't occur (laughs) to me that I could teach yoga. This is how, like, (laughs) I thought, well, I have these event management skills. So I thought I went to this thing to, you know, organize these t-shirts with their names for all these graduations when they happen in the summer. And um, I did that for about six months. (laughs) (laughs) And I was dying. I I Mm. didn't realize it. And then I heard that, there was a tour where I was going to tour on tour in Switzerland. I was like, can I go on vacation? <laughs> and they actually let me. And so I, I, I went there and I was able to, uh, again, offer Seva And, um, and I'm, and there's this picture of Freddie Mercury. Cause it was, it was uh, Lake Le Mans. That was where he spent a lot of time. And you have to understand like this 12 years I was in the ashram. I didn't have any, Access to culture, like I barely knew who the Beatles were. I mean, it was oh, terrible, wow. honestly. I need a lot of education in terms of music. To this day, people think I like they don't. You don't know this song? I'm like, no. But imagine from you know age 21 to 32, 1990s. It, it's like I had no access to the outer cultural world. It's blocked it out. So then here's this guy Freddie Mercury. I didn't really know who he was. But he looks so amazingly ecstatic. You know, he was like
0: in this yeah. incredible pose and this oh, statue,
2: so you know, like on the Tottenham Court Road, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one. And I just thought, God, you know, he looks really amazing, you know, like and uh and so I kept walking past him every day and, and then I, I learned a little bit about him, but I got I wanna be like him. I wanna <laughs> feel I wanna feel like that free, you know, and expressed. And um and then I thought to myself, why am I why am I in a t-shirt factory in the middle of Leicestershire? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> and I'm like, where is that guy? <laughs> where, where is Whisperdy. that English guy? And I thought, surely he'll be in, the, in, the, in, the, in this convention center. So I I go run over there, and I'm looking around. And sure enough, there he is, standing in the lobby. <laughs> and he was also offering his seva. He was doing welcoming seva. And, uh, and I came up to him, I'm like, hi, I go, do you remember me? He's like, yes. <laughs> and he was like, I'm like, can, if, can I still teach at trioga? And he's like, yes. And he goes, when can you start? He goes, can you start in two weeks? We're doing a schedule change. And I'm like, yes. Oh, and that wow. was it. Finished the retreat, went back home, quit that job. And then I had to figure out if I was in less to share. That was London. That's the, the starting of this weird life where I spent 17 years commuting back and forth, living in the Midlands, but commuting in to teach at Trioka. And so for the longest time, this is another little known secret. I lived in a therapy room, at the top of Primrose Hill. You know that one on the third floor?
1: Oh,
2: how long? There's is- a number of us teachers. For at least... I don't know. So it became five, like a yoga teacher,
1: yoga teacher squat in the evening.
2: I was. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was weird because, you know, I couldn't really afford to buy it, you know, rent a room or anything like that. So Jonathan was like, well, stay here. It a lovely futon. And um, and I got to know the, the cleaners very well. It was almost like Triyoga Primozile became this little transitional ashram for yeah, me from that ashram. life. Mm. And I'm very grateful to Jonathan for all the opportunities he gave me. So I, And I eventually kind of landed on my feet and, and so there you go. That's a little bit of history.
1: How did you deal with like, your family, etc.? When you said, well, I'm going to go off and lead, lead this life. And I guess all your contemporaries at university who were going off into their dance careers or not. Like, how did you deal with the... I mean, imagine some criticism and some thoughts of you being insane.
2: <laughs> yes. So <laughs> you have to understand something about my mother, whom I adore, who she's the most powerful freedom fighter type ever. So like, she's like civil rights activist, you know, women's rights activist for a long time and very powerful person. You know, she had one of those those tests done and she's like a Napoleon, you know? And we always thought because I think I've turned out the same, right? And when I made this choice to go to the ashram, there was this weird confluence of events that happened. The weekend I was graduating from university, Grimai was flying from Japan back to New York, but she stopped over in Oakland, California on the way, right? And unexpectedly got off the plane and took like a taxi over to the Oakland Ashram and did this amazing weekend. People hadn't seen her for a really long time in the Bay area. And within like hours all across of California, like, um, you know, people started arriving and the day that Grmai, okay, here's the point. The day that Grimai came to the ashram and I was like, oh my God, it's my graduation weekend. I'm like, get to meet I hadn't met her yet in her you know, real life. My mom flies in for my graduation. My grandmother flies in for my graduation. And all on the same day. And I thought that was a rather wild moment. You know, like all the, the, the female power of the of the family and my teacher, we all showed up in the same and so I had to figure out how to I didn't tell the most practicing right you know you don't tell them things you're at university right and so then i'm like okay we're going to go to a program tonight and it's a yoga program and we're going to be chanting and and i so i dragged my mom and my grandmother to this program and hundreds of people are there and i meanwhile if you're new you could sit at the front of the hall and i'm like i'm definitely gonna sit at the front of the hall because we're gonna chant i want to be right there right and i found them chairs at the back of the hall which is quite small so they were actually lucky lucky to get in but i remember it finished and I was just, like, blown away. It was amazing. And then I found my mom in the lobby on a pay phone. They had those in those days. And she was trying to call a taxi because she was just mm. completely pissed off.
1: <laughs> not, not the police, at least. <laughs>
2: <laughs> not the police. And she goes, and I just come from, like, what are you doing? And then we had this, like, kind of tussle in the lobby. She goes, I'm getting out of here. If that woman thinks she's God, well, she's wrong. <gasps> And she had a total reaction. And my grandmother, bless her heart, was sitting there holding her little purse. and Her eyes were really oh. big, waiting beside. Her. And I was like, so I'm like, I'll take you back to the university. And meanwhile, I you were able to go up to Darshan and meet your mom. And I was thinking, I cannot believe my mom's going to make me miss Darshan with my guru. And so I was a bit furious and kind of yelled at her a bit. <laughs> I was pretty hard on her Um, but it all turned out for the best really so my dad flies in the next day they have and they're divorced so you mean they haven't talked for years so they had this family meeting because they decided that I was you know needed to be saved but I managed to talk with them quite you know, in a very pre- I, I hadn't lost my mind. I was quite clear what I wanted to do. And this is where I wanted to go. And they were just a little concerned because spent all this money on a university education. And I was going to go up to an ashram in upstate New York and not do anything that I had focused on studying. And I just said, look, this is what I want to do. And it'll be fine. And you don't have to say my parents were great. They just sort of rolled with it. They weren't happy about it. Um, but they they loved me and they trusted me. And so they let me go. And there are a few times you know, my mom was a little bit like, she was quite high in Texas politics, you know, she was, that was her world. Um, and so she was checking with people in New York state to find out about it. And, mm. and I had to basically call her and said, mom, stop it. I'd yell at her again. I'll go, stop it. It's fine. Come. And so my mom came every year that I was in the ashram, she came and she would um, spend time with me. And I loved my mother. It was like, she just was like, had such a great time with him. And I was just like, wait a minute, what am I, chopped liver? (laughs) But it was was so interesting. And about halfway through that time, I said, Mom, do you want to take a a meditation intensive? And meanwhile, she, understand, she was like chief of staff for the lieutenant governor of Texas. So she was in a really hardcore job. She was very stressed and kind of, um, you know, not well. And she just turned to me and she said, I would love to.
0: And I'm like, mm. i was
2: like, really, and so in she goes. You remember her face was very hard and kind of, and then she and she goes in there, and I'm like, outside, I don't know what's happening. I just know she's in there with and a bunch of other people, and you know, and she walks out at the end of the day, and I'm like, I can barely recognize her. Her face was so soft, wow, and she had like tears in her Aww. eyes, I'm like, wow. And after that, like she was the most dedicated like she wanted me to stay when, it, when I said it was time to go she goes are you sure you want to leave she loved and I just thought wow I'm so lucky that I had this kind of transformation she totally supported me being there and I'm very grateful for that
0: mm. I'm interested to know what your first yoga class was like. is in the one the first one that you taught how did that go the first one that I taught
1: mm.
2: gosh when was that you see I've been in Because I was a dancer, I've been in the body and engaging in that way for so long. And I was trained in choreography. So I've always been telling people what to do in movement and stuff Mm, like that. mm. So teaching yoga wasn't necessarily hard transition. Mm -hmm. Um, It was probably in the ashram. It just was like duck to water. But I do remember um, when I came to the UK and the first class, Jonathan asked me to cover a teacher's practice. (laughs) <laughs> it's on Monday mornings. And I went and I covered it and people hated it.
1: <laughs> Why? What what did oh, no. they hate about it?
2: Because I you know, I was very Iyengar in those days. Um, meaning very um, you know, instructive and told you what to do and very detailed and I, I don't think people were accustomed to that way of teaching at Trioga at that time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh and so I felt like I'd failed. It was it was kind of hard for me. But um but eventually we got into teaching and and one finds one's groove after a while, don't
1: we? So on, on the topic of dance, so of course, dance typically to some degree is done for like an external observer. Like somebody's looking at you, you want to to some degree look good and you know, make make a shape that is appealing. There's more to it than that, of course. There was some deeper inquiry with dance, but on a base level. So did you find it hard then transitioning to both doing asana and teaching asana? Like, did was there part of you that still wanted to some degree to perform?
2: I mean it's kind of an interesting question. There's something that happens when you perform and maybe Holly knows this from her background as a, I think you're a singer right? Yeah, dancer as well actually. We're a dancer too, yeah. amazing. So when what happens is when you get on in a situation like a stage let's say there's an audience there's this powerful coming together of consciousness facing consciousness. It's, it's the first Shiva Sutra, Chaitanya Atma. And so you have all these people come together, and there's this shared, powerful connection that happens. And so it was in that context that I had my, you know, these spiritual, a really profound spiritual experience of being totally just alive. And like, there was no sense of the past or the future was just being all powerful, alive, and just ecstatic in the moment. That's what happened to me when I danced. And so I missed that aspect. Um, asana, obviously the, there's there's a class experience and there's your personal practice. A so personal practice has become that place where I, I pause and I forget about myself and who I am and, the details of life That's my dog Aww. um and and that's when i have that kind of a, more of a soft version of that inner experience of connection which is why i love the restorative um and then when i teach a gap class but a similar thing happens in that dynamic looking like when you're totally present you probably feel this too you know in your teaching like you get kind of fired up there's this powerful connection between the collective it's like all these beings of light and consciousness come together for a shared purpose, more or less, for a period of time, and it becomes very heightened. And so I can find that same kind of experience in the teaching in a slightly different form, but it's definitely mm-hmm. still there. It's an absolute total presence of, of just connection and obviously then you have these other aspects of managing a class i laugh so much at some of your instagram stuff I'm like yeah <laughs> um, dealing with the challenges of you know a whole load of people in a class and different expectations and things so um you know but when it does when there is that that moment of connection it's it's truly amazing we feel the energy between everyone
1: mm, so yeah and that's i think quite significant to talk about now with regards to online yoga uh and and I, I I love the fact online yoga exists. Of course, it means people can practice on their own terms where they want. It means that in my live classes, for instance, I'm teaching people that I know live in different cities that wouldn't be able to practice with me. But it does well. You are if you're not in the room, you are missing something. And equally, when you are in the room with the teacher, but also teaching online, you aren't quite fully present there. You can still teach in a wonderful class. You can still do all the things you would normally do, but that magic. Mm. It's slightly diluted, isn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing. Like when we all started doing the zooming back in whenever it was. And I remember just feeling so strange. Like I was sitting in a room in my house with this screen. And I I felt like I was just talking to myself Mm. for like an hour. (laughs) And I had to really dig deep and come back to the kind of this kind of when we go back to that conversation about responsibility, I do feel that it was my responsibility to provide a place, a sanctuary, even though if it might be a little square on the screen for people to come to it, wherever they are to find sanctuary again. And I thought, even though it feels like it's not so great, I don't feel that kind of visceral, tangible, ecstatic connection. I I might feel in a live environment I understand something is still happening. And then, of course, you get the feedback from your students who say, thank you so much. I so needed that. Mm. You know, like, it made such a difference. And the funny thing, I I didn't think restorative would translate to online. And in a weird way, it's almost better. Um, and, And the reason why is I found that, before, you'd still get, I mean, obviously, the in-person thing is really heightened. That's beautiful. But what I liked about the Zoom aspect is that it encourages people to take responsibility for themselves mm. and their practice. So it, you have all these weird-shaped props like pillows and couches and stuff. And you know, I'm thinking my that, that Iyengar strain in me was just sort of <laughs> like, yeah. And I just had to let go of all that stuff. And I said, look, just find something here. Here's what it looks like. Figure it out. Find a pillow in your house, you know, or a blanket. And and I like the fact that it makes people have to figure it out themselves and set it up themselves because I actually think in the end, it, you know, yoga is a, a, a personal practice of taking mm-hmm. responsibility for your own state. Mm-hmm. However, whatever style you choose to practice. But I do feel like people need to be empowered and have agency for themselves. And that's why sometimes I get a little, you know, the whole – star yoga teacher thing or even instagram i think can lend itself to that that tendency but to put people up on a pedestal Mm. like you want to point people back to themselves to find their own power and strength and 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 yeah sense of self Mm. right
0: yeah
1: before we move on i just wanted a little tip for listeners toilet rolls are the most versatile prop i found
0: (gasps) I was wondering where that was coming. As,
1: as in, you can use them as cushions, as pillows, you can put them <laughs> under the back of the knees. Equally, you can use them as, block, as actual bricks if you need support and you oh. can stack them on top of each other. So good, oh, solid toilet rolls. I recommend all yoga students. <laughs> <have> <laughs> <them>. <laughs> I love it. I'm
0: going to add that to my list. Like Adam
1: <laughs> Hustler
2: says, toilet rolls are really great for
0: the curve of the neck when <laughs> yeah. you rest back. They need to be sahasana. full. They need
1: to be full toilet rolls. They, they be can't be ones. partially used. They have to be- <laughs>
0: okay, no cheap toilet <laughs> <laughs> before we do a few quick fire questions, I was just going to say, you know, if someone that is listening has never done restorative yoga before, how would you encourage someone to come along and what can they expect and what are the main benefits?
2: Well, this is the thing, you know, restor- restorative is very much a slower paced practice. It won't be like what you might see normally, you know, in terms of flowing classes and things like that. It's all on the floor. You're going to have different types of props that support the body in different ways and it gives you a chance just to slow down, become still, and feel what is there. And sometimes that can be challenging, you know, um, but that is also part of a process of release that's really important for allowing the nervous system to come back down into a state of an even tone. So, I, you know, I talk about it in terms of nervous system health. It's like, I think we all, everybody should be taught restorative yoga. So, you know, when you need to like take care of your nervous system, if it's really in a defensive mode or overly stimulated, these are some of the things that you can do to help it. So it's a very quiet, still practice for being able to do that. And I actually don't play music. Some people do. Um, I I don't feel like it, it helps with the exception of maybe like the singing bowl gong thing. Mm. I think that could be really interesting but when um, it's more like music that has a story to mm. it because I mean mm. we know music is so powerful so all of a sudden you know I'm like listening to something reminds me of you know like a slow dance in high school in 1987 <laughs> I'm like uh-oh and I'm not I'm not with myself and I'm like disturbed you know you just don't know how music's going to impact people or trigger something mm-hmm. so and plus from that time uh, in the ashram you know it's taught that to become still and to be in stillness and and just natural sound is it's part of the tradition so i i tend to approach it that way unless there's some really disturbing sounds outside and then i might play the tambora or something like Mm -hmm. that that helps to kind of create like an even tone but um it's just a nice way to to pause slow down and 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 cultivate the ability to relax and connect Mm -hmm.
1: You mentioned as, as part of the, one of the first things you said, actually but kind of almost bearing witness to what is there when you slow down and what comes up. And you said it could be hard. I a, a guy called Naval Ramakat, who's kind of a modern philosopher slash angel investor, really wonderful man, he wrote about being still and he talked about it as if when you lie down and pause, which is so rare, just and just without any intention of meditating, just lying down or sitting down and just pausing and letting things arise, it's almost like and you've turned your computer on after a year and the inbox is, is downloading all those emails. So all the things we haven't dealt with, all the things we haven't acknowledged, and that could be things like childhood trauma, come to the surface, and we then can begin to deal with them. But if we are on the go constantly, which most of us are, we never get the time to even pause. Even if we're in a bath, often people are reading a book or watching a TV show, et cetera. But that ability <laughs> to, to pause allows the download to happen, and then allows you to begin to deal with that stuff.
2: Yeah. He's absolutely right. Mm. I think that that was the source of the restlessness. I was a very restless, and to a certain extent still am, person. But it's like that's the first thing I experience when I slow down and pause, which immediately makes me want to get up and move and go do something, Mm. (laughs) and to do something useful. So it's a lot of about, you know, I frame this in the book as well. The whole restorative is actually quite a deep inquiry into the looking at the way that you – the lenses through which you see the world – Mm -hmm. you know Mm. and it it presents a process for doing that uh, Mm. process of inquiry and
1: it isn't necessarily happy i always say it's about yoga you know yoga practice isn't necessarily designed to be a happy entertaining practice which some people have the intention of oh well he didn't make me happy in class it wasn't joyful it wasn't joyful (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm not one that brings a lot of joy in my yoga teaching (laughs) (laughs) intentionally but equally i don't bring a lot of sadness i want people to have their own journey and facilitate that but I think it is important to acknowledge that in these even shavasana isn't necessarily relaxing it might be sometimes but other times it might not be And i think people need to acknowledge that don't they
2: absolutely it is it is i think back to the the years of my practice and i think i feel like i've been in a frying pan for a long (laughs) long. (laughs) and especially when you're starting to deal with aspects of your personality or behaviors that are self-limiting you know, you, you begin to see and experience those aspects and that is sometimes hard to look in the face. Yeah. But that to me is is necessary work to be done in order to kind of clear or, de, you know, as Gormai says, declutter the mind. You mm-hmm. have to kind of clear away those things to be able to listen deeply and experience, you know, this, what I, I call in the book, fullness of being or a presence, you know, this a, a sense of deep contentment Mm -hmm. or joy you have to work with that Mm -hmm. and clear that stuff you know
1: what can i ask one more slightly before we do quick fire questions so obviously people now are coming to yoga in very different ways and very different with very different intentions so you know some people are coming to yoga yeah the first yoga class is goat yoga (laughs) which which isn't the dream Uh, but people are coming for because they want to get bendy or they're going to very fast music-led classes people are finding yoga through different doors which aren't necessarily traditional uh, or, or or to some degree acknowledged in lineage fully and I just wondered like if if someone comes in around a different path what advice would you give to someone who wants to explore the traditions of yoga uh, that might not be offered on that path. You know, I, my view is that if more people practice yoga full stop, great, and eventually they'll find their way to the tradition often, or they will live a life that is to some degree by, guided by yoga principles, or at least they'll have 60 minutes of a little bit more self inquiry more than they would if they were in the pub for that hour, <laughs> et cetera. But how would you advise people to go deeper?
2: Well, I think you, you just have to start to listen inwards. Mm. I feel like, it, I, I go back and forth and stuff. Sometimes I feel like the, the the modern yoga world is completely alien to me, I don't get it sometimes. And then other times I think, well, wow, it's just doing what it's always done. It's just innovating and, mm. and changing and there's these really healthy green shoots of transformation mm. with the whole diversity and inclusion uh, conversations happening and accessibility. So there's some really amazing stuff happen that. Uh, I think it's wonderful but at the same time I do like you think however people meet the practice whatever form it comes to them I think we have to have a little bit of faith in the power of the tradition and the yoga itself to to allow transformation and everything in its own time everybody has their pathway you know I can only share what I know and then each you know person they might take one little thing and go off and find themselves you just never know it's like everybody's in a process of awakening and just to be very try to be non-judgmental about that mm. and just be present and offer what you know to be true and then allow that unfolding to take place in the way it needs to mm-hmm.
1: and people will find you and the restorative practice when they need it in their life yeah and, exactly. and, and equally they will go again at some point to somewhere else for many reasons yeah.
2: And they might find, they might do that class and end up in a yin and they might think, this is better for me. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that now. It's, in the beginning, I was quite dogmatic way back in the early mm-hmm. 90s. And now, having taught it, try to go for so long with so many different teachers and styles and things, I just realized, you know, there's so many different pathways to the truth. And just as my pathway was quite particular, you know, I know it's not the pathway for many people to end up in a situation where you actually have a guru. There's some, complexity with that in in modern Western world. So I don't necessarily recommend that and I don't even necessarily talk about it so much. It's more about, I try just to point people back to their own experience and just to keep listening and Mm staying engaged with life, you know, and listen to your own inner voices and study and try to take some texts from the tradition to understand it a bit better because it really does bring it into its fullness when you do. You and and just let things take their course. Mm.
0: Should we do some quick yeah. Have Yeah. Could you recommend uh, or suggest a book to the audience that has changed your life? Uh, to suggest a book to whom? To the audience, to the listeners. Oh, to the audience. Is that the <laughs> wrong, that's the wrong oh. word, isn't it? Audience, listeners. the listeners.
2: Can listeners, the listeners be an audience? oh, right. audience? <laughs> to change your life. Oh, my God. You know, that's, that is not easy for me to answer because I love books. There's so many books that I'm I'm constantly in the process of reading, usually four at once. <laughs> um, and a book is such a unique angle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a good one that is helpful in terms of understanding the yoga tradition, I would say, that comes from my teacher, she wrote a book called The Yoga of Discipline. And I think it's quite helpful in terms of understanding the roots of the tradition and the different teachings and how they apply to modern everyday life. I think that's a nice book to get from Gurumai Chidvalasananda, The Yoga of Discipline. We included in our teacher training course. Um, but I also like I was thinking recently what I've been reading is a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. you know, this amazing Buddhist monk and he it's the book is The Other Shore and it's a mm-hmm. wonderful exposition on the notion of shunya or space I just love reading his. And then another one that's really good is, you, have you heard of Nora Bateson? No. no.
0: She's,
2: the, she's the daughter of Gregory Bateson, who's a great thinker, philosopher of the 20th century, and um, anthropologist. And, and a real, uh, you know, he, he coined this phrase in terms of his investigation of nature and things. is What is, what is it that connects us all? And that was the frame through which he began to see the world. So anyway, he's kind of really set up the modern ecology movement. And Nora Bates and his daughter carries on, and she wrote a book called uh, S- Small Arcs of Larger Circles. And it's a beautiful mm. book in tr- of the ecology of things and commenting on society in different ways. and um, And also it has poetry and things like that. So I like to kind of combine texts with modern thinkers, with other... Religions just to come to a fullness of understanding. So, any of those could
1: be really interesting
0: for people. Mm. We'll put them in the notes. Yeah.
1: What is wealth for you at this stage in your career? Like, what is wealth?
2: Space. Mm. Beautiful. Space to be. And I have to, while the pandemic was, uh, is, has been challenging, it did give me an experience of space. And realizing that I love more than anything just to have time to read mm. and reflect and write and practice. And sometimes the rigor of teaching life, as you'll know, you have to teach a workshop and a training and, and, and it's 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 a lot. So I, I'm quite grateful for the pandemic for stopping the schedule that I had where I can start to make choices now and just try to protect space to be able to be which is, mm. to me, also the restorative aspect. Yeah.
1: And, and you talked a little about it in the, uh, the first chapter of the book, this, you know the space between the breath mm, and, the fact, you know, and the fact we often ignore the pause between the inhale and exhale. We think about the two stages rather than the four and the space between the thoughts. I think mm. Victor Frankl talked about that, the space between mm. the thoughts and the space between you thinking and the, the reaction to your thoughts. Mm, yeah, that was really nice. There's an
2: amazing verse in the Bhairava Tantra verse 24, and that's been the verse that's really kind of been the focus of my practice for a long time. And it describes basically inhale down, exhale up, Mm -hmm. which most yoga people inhale up, exhale down, right? You're working with the values in that way. But this one says, inhale is down into embodiment, into jiva, the body. Exhale is up, and it refers to prana, shakti, the rise. And then it talks about the visarga, the space in between the breaths, and in this text the vinyana vera tantra um it says put your focus in the space in between the breath and there is where you'll experience the state of in this case vera or the state of the highest reality and and i have to say that that's been the focus for my practice for a really long time
1: the space between
0: and can you tell us a little bit about your book and when it's coming out and the title yeah the
2: book so it's restorative yoga power presence practice For teachers and trainees, so it's not light reading, (laughs) (laughs) but I did write it for everybody. It is what I I think everybody could read it, Um, and it comes out March 21st, 2022, The Singing Dragon, and you can pre-order it now. There's a, on my website, com. you can find a page there, and you can click the pre-order, and I will be having a book launch in early April, and those kind of things, and yeah, and teacher trainings happening around it. So the website has lots of information. Perfect.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you
2: for coming on. Thank you guys. It's been so nice to to meet you in this way. Honestly, it's good.